Our text on this Easter morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 1 to 12. If you have your Bible still there, keep it open there to that passage. It is now the third day after Jesus was crucified. You and I must first of all remember that though we as readers of Luke can see and talk about grace and hope and salvation amidst the cross, For those who were present to those events over the last few days, there was no narrative to guide them. Most of Jesus' followers wouldn't have known the details we know. Which means that for Jesus' followers, there was no hope. And so at the death of their teacher on the cross, the disciples left, fled even. According to Luke, it was only a few others who were still around, namely Joseph of Arimathea and the women who had followed him from Galilee. So, If you'll permit it, let me back up just a little, if you still have your Bibles open there, and let's start at Luke chapter 23, verse 50, where Luke says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. We get no explanation as to why this Joseph would take responsibility for burying the body of Jesus except for his moral character. He is a righteous man, Luke says. And like the righteous Jews we read about in the infancy narratives, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Simeon, the prophetess Anna, remember them, Joseph was waiting for the fulfillment of of the messianic promises. The kingdom. He evidently thought Jesus was the one. He longed for the kingdom Jesus preached. He was a member of the council, meaning the Sanhedrin, but he wasn't involved in their plotting or their decision. Was he absent from the proceedings or or opposed to their course of action? Luke doesn't say. But verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. He must have been a man of influence and impeccable reputation to be so bold as to request that the governor allow him to bury someone accused of sedition. The Romans normally forbade burial of people sentenced to death. Most victims of crucifixion were left to rot on the cross 
or given a dishonorable burial. Joseph couldn't stand the thought of that. Furthermore, Jews considered burying corpses to be a pious duty. And so, as a righteous man of means, Joseph performs an act of pious devotion. He removes the bloody body and transports it to the tomb. And presumably he has help, but Luke doesn't mention others. And it's a striking moment when after his shameful death, Jesus receives some honor in being placed in a tomb that had never been used. Actually, it says where no one had ever yet been laid. Because Jews who could afford a tomb would lay a corpse in the tomb, wait until the flesh had decomposed, then gather the bones and place them in an ossuary box, which then allowed the tomb to be reused. And so they could have multiple occupants in the tomb, but this one hadn't been used yet at all. It would have been, in all likelihood, Joseph's own tomb for him and his family. Which says to me that Joseph's making a statement in doing this. He's with Jesus. But despite his piety, he still goes home to darkness. He has no hope. Then there were the women, verse 55. The women who had come with him, that is Jesus, from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested, according to the commandment. They followed Joseph to the tomb. They were surely grateful for what he did. Interestingly, Mark records that the women watched where Jesus was laid. Luke records they watched how the body was laid, which likely explains why they prepare spices to anoint him. It was their obedience to the Sabbath laws that prevented Jesus from being anointed as was customary when he was first laid in the tomb. But now in the morning after the Sabbath, they'd be ready. Ready to honor his body, but without hope. Jesus was dead. It was all over. But, and I I want you to look at that glorious first word of verse 1 of chapter 24, which I'm so glad the ESV translates as it does. But, because there are translations that don't bother with that little word. They just start right in with, on the first day of the week, but I like the word but there. I'm building a major point of my sermon on it, in fact, because it's a contrast. They had no hope. There was no spring in these women's step as they went to the tomb at early dawn that morning. They weren't going to the tomb saying to themselves, well, 
We've got the spices in case he's still dead, but let's hope he's alive again. <laughs> it was not dead people stay dead. They didn't expect anything except more sorrow. But, verse 1 of chapter 24, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Did you catch it? Just that that use of the title there? It's suddenly the Lord Jesus. This, This is Luke, of course, writing about what happened after the fact, right? And he cannot help himself. He's already giving us the big clue as to what's happened because this is now the Lord Jesus that they're looking for. Why? Because he's been resurrected. Oh, but they don't know that. Luke writes in verse 4, they were perplexed about this. And I actually think it'd be a little clearer and a little truer to the language if we translated it something maybe like they were utterly at a loss. The significance of the empty tomb is not obvious to them. Nor could it be. The explanation for it is beyond finite human minds to grasp on their own. It requires, in fact, divine revelation to explain it, which is just what they got. While they were perplexed about this, Luke writes, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And the reaction of the women is understandable. Luke says they were frightened bowed their faces to the ground. There appear these two men in resplendent clothes. They're angels. No wings necessary, you know. They radiate the splendor of God. It's the same words that are used to describe the shining garments on the Mount of Transfiguration in chapter 9 that are used of these angels in the tomb. And I understand it to have been a sudden appearance of these men because the phrase, they stood by them, is also used in chapter 2, verse 9, when an angel of the Lord appears to shepherds, keeping watch over their flock by night. It's interesting, isn't it, where the angels come in this gospel at the beginning and at the end, basically. So now, just as the angel Gabriel appeared to interpret signs and events at the beginning of the story to explain what God was about to do, so now angels appear at the close to explain what God has done. And while the women were bowed down to the ground, one of the angels voiced a rebuke, albeit mildly intended, I think. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Which, I mean, of course they weren't doing that, right? That's not what they were doing. They weren't seeking the living. They were looking for a dead Jesus. 
The angel knows that. I think this is a gentle way of saying, you should have known he would rise from the dead. And it's subtle, but the question the angel asks then takes the focus away from the empty tomb in a way. Away from just the tomb as providing by itself evidence for the fact of Jesus' resurrection. It's as a living Savior that Jesus brings salvation. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? And it isn't resuscitation, right? I have to say this every Easter Sunday. Jesus hadn't been raised to resume life as normal. Bodily life, yes. But not in the limited ways that you and I experience that now. That's why he's not there, I think. Had Jesus himself just been there, sitting and waiting for them to show up, well, then we'd be thinking of things in the same category as Lazarus or as the son of the widow of Nain or as the daughter of Jairus in Luke's gospel. But Jesus had been raised to a new kind of bodily existence. He'd entered into glory. He hadn't just been brought back to life only to die again another day. So he's not there. This is going to take some time to understand Verse 6, the angels say it now, speaking in unison, it sounds like from the way Luke says it. He is not here, but has risen. Or literally, he has been raised. It is a passive verb. God raised Jesus from the dead. Acts chapter 5, verse 30 says Peter and the apostles before the council, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. And with this astounding truth now spoken, the angels say more in their unified voice. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. It's another mild rebuke, I think, recalling a collage here of Jesus's prophecies about his death and resurrection. He had foretold both all the way back in chapter 9, verse 22, before Luke says Jesus had even set his face toward Jerusalem. He would, of course, for a third time, foretell his death in Luke 18 and speak also of rising on the third day, just before he heals the blind beggar and saves Zacchaeus, about to enter Jerusalem. Perhaps they should have been expecting this. That's the point the angels are making. And indeed, verse 8 says, And they remembered his words. They remembered his words. We should note that because this seems to place the women in the inner circle of disciples with whom such a prediction had been shared, doesn't it? And not only did these women remember his words themselves, they also believed them. We see that from their report to the disciples that's coming. I don't mean that these women had all the implications worked out at this point. 
no one would have all the implications worked out for some time. I don't know precisely what they understood and didn't, but they now believed that what Jesus had said was in some way true. And they became messengers of what they'd seen and heard. Now, there's a significant truth here that many commentators and preachers point out that it is the Word of God that makes sense of what has happened. Luke 24, the whole chapter, recounts three episodes, as you probably know. First is the women's encounter with the angels at the empty tomb. Secondly, the encounter on the road to Emmaus in verses 13 to 35, which we'll consider next week. And then thirdly, Jesus' appearance to his disciples in Jerusalem in verses 36 to 49. And if you were to read this chapter today, you'd see that in all three of those episodes, there is a call to remember God's word. From our text today in verses 6 to 8, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then on the Emmaus road, next week, the words of Jesus in verses 25 to 27. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should enter these things and suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then in Jerusalem, his instructions to the disciples in verses 44 to 46. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. What could Luke be intending to communicate in this final chapter of his gospel if not that it's vital for faith and understanding the death of, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we remember the word, the scriptures, Jesus himself said in Luke 16, verse 31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Study the book. We must get to know the word of God if we want to know and understand Jesus. And part of the point of our text this morning is that we are not left to draw our own conclusions. We cannot see these things clearly on our own, you see. It's why angels have to explain it. Our minds and hearts will only begin to embrace the significance of all these things through the scriptures. And you know what starts to happen as you take it in? You start to witness. These women were perplexed then instructed by the angels, then they remember the words, and now they're witnesses, verse 9, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. We're down one now. And to all the rest. 
Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. They'd traveled with Jesus from Galilee. They'd stood by the cross. They'd witnessed the burial. They'd discovered the empty tomb. They'd heard the announcement of his resurrection. Now they're telling the same story. They're all telling the same story. And the apostles dismiss it. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I'd like to say it's just straightforward disbelief, but it's more than that, actually. They dismiss the women's report as utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. The term that's used there is unique. It's a word that's used to describe the delirious talk of the very sick. Is it not remarkable that the first skeptics of the resurrection are Jesus' own apostles? Jesus had told them numerous times about his death and resurrection, but now they reject the women's witness except maybe Peter. See, thankfully, there's at least one disciple who at least looks into things, verse 12. But Peter, Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stopping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Which isn't a negative statement, but neither is it quite Easter faith, it doesn't seem. For now his inspection led to wonder, not yet belief. He sees the linen cloths. He goes away marveling. More will have to happen. Thankfully, it was the beginning of his full belief because this is the same Peter who declares in Acts chapter 2 verses 22 to 24 at the Pentecost day men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death Peter would get there. Do you believe it? How do you respond to the resurrection? Your initial response to the resurrection may not be your ultimate response. The opening mood of Easter morning is one of surprise, astonishment, fear even. 
but it ends in faith. Much remains to be explained on this day of resurrection in Luke's gospel. Jesus himself will do some explaining in the verses to come next week. The triumph of the resurrection is far more glorious than anything that had ever entered the human mind. Even the mind of faithful Jews like Joseph of Arimathea who were looking for the kingdom of God. Still for us today, there is a sense of wonder about it. None of the gospel writers tells us how resurrection happened. Our passage ends with Peter marveling over events and the reminder of Jesus' words, and it becomes then a moment for reflection and decision and faith. Is not resurrection what Jesus promised? Has not God acted on behalf of Jesus? Is Jesus alive to carry out God's plan after all? These are questions not only for Peter, but for all of us. What else can explain these events? For the disciples, understanding and belief was a process, but they would get there. Indeed, they would be so devoted to the truth of the resurrected Lord that many of them would die for it. This Easter morning, what say you? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.